0: Hey everyone, Uh, I planned to have this piece with you late last week but then I had my first COVID-19 vaccination and it completely knocked me flat for the weekend. It seems I'm one of those folk whose body has an immune response with a sense of drama. Uh, All good now and I'll be playing catch up with this newsletter for the rest of the week here. So I went for my first vaccination on Friday morning which meant I had to get myself to Dreghorn which is a wee town in Scotland, dozen miles to the northwest of here, which meant for me leaping on the train for about only the sixth time in the last year. So I got on the train, I stood in the doorway, lathered on a bit of hand sanitizer before steadying myself against the handrail, and I watched the world blur past in a pleasant way that I've grown accustomed to living without. It was only the next stop I was going to, less than 10 minutes of travel. But damn, I just wanted to keep going. Just just let me ride until the end of the line and then turn around and ride all the way back or grab a different train and go who knows where, wherever. I don't care. Just let me stay on a train. But it's, it's not so much the love of travel itself that I was missing. It's that I have all this writing I want to do this year and trains seem to be the places where I write best. I'm reading a fantastic book right now, the latest by Annie Murphy-Paul, a science writer who's very interested in all the things that seem to affect our working intelligence. you probably heard of the nurture versus nature argument, you know, your upbringing versus what is hardwired into your genetic code, as some comedian described it somewhere. Apologies, I don't know who that was. It's either my parents ruined me or I was already ruined. Hmm, cheerful. So nurture versus nature is the kind of pithy soundbite that goes viral in the media because it sounds good. It has that sing-song quality that's pleasing to the ear. That's a big part of why you've heard of it. And you've also heard of it because it's an old idea, repeated by a lot of long-dead people, like philosopher John Locke, who coined the whole nurture thing back in 1690. Unfortunately, as I understand it, nurture versus nature has all sorts of problems with it. I'll be diving into this another time because it has huge implications for curiosity and how we see the world. But for now, let's ignore both nurture and nature, because they operate on the principle that your intelligence today, right now, is fixed. If you sit in your chair, your IQ is a certain number. And if you leap up and go for a walk, or glug back a mug full of espresso, or throw yourself in a cold river and splash around happily for a while, or get on your bike and pedal madly up a hill, your IQ is the same, right? Your capacity for intelligent thought is unchanged. You may have a clear ahead from doing these things, but that doesn't mean you're actually smarter, right? Annie Murphy Paul's book, which I'm still reading, so this is the broadest and most imperfect of overviews, suggests that this is the wrong way to think about human intelligence. It's about the evidence supporting an approach that treats your intelligence as something you can improve, depending on what you do, who you're with, and where you are. Treating your IQ as something that doesn't just exist inside your brain. So here's a story. A while back, a friend of mine was really struggling to write. She had loads of stuff lined up, blog posts and articles to pitch and a book to draft. And she'd bought this massive, expensive writing desk for her house and cleared out a small room for it. No distractions, no icons on her laptop screen, just her and her writing. That was the idea. But every time she went in there and she sat down, nothing happened. No inspiration. Now, this is pretty common for writers. I've seen it called writer's block. You probably know that term too. You know, some form of it happens to anyone attempting anything and hitting a brick wall in their mind. But look at that phrase. Brick wall in their mind. So it's an internal problem, right? If they were proper writers or painters or designers or whatever, they should be able to just push through it. And they can't. So something is wrong. And it's them. They're wrong. No wonder writers freak out about writer's block. It's Sunday morning at the Church of Blaming Yourself. But my friend, with her lovely new writing desk, was still publishing things on her blog, really good things. So if she was blocked, how was she getting this writing done? Oh, I just went skiing, she said. She loves skiing. She loves the energy of being around people who love skiing like she does. So she took her laptop and sat and wrote at the back of the bar in the ski resort she liked using. The way she described all this was, well, I knew I had to get the writing done and it wasn't getting done at home, so I just kind of squeezed it in elsewhere. Why am I such a failure at motivating myself? What my friend found, I'll argue, is that she's smarter as a writer in that bar than she is at home. The thoughts that she was finding so hard to generate at her writing desk were super easy at the back of that bar. For her, not for other people, for people who can... Only think deeply in something approaching silence, a bar like that would be the death of creativity. I'd say I'm probably one of those people. Annie Murphy Paul's book, which is called The Extended Mind, looks deeply at the evidence for what she calls thinking outside the brain, and maybe what my friend would call going skiing. First up, there's embodied cognition, which is what your body is doing when you're thinking. Ever had that thing where you have your best thoughts in the shower, or when you're out for a walk? That's because your body is doing something that is making your brain work differently. It's not that you're just, you know, having a break. It's that what you're doing with your body is making your thoughts flow easier, helping you dig deeper, connect things together in a way you couldn't do before and so on. You are behaving smarter. Also, it appears that people who wave their hands madly during conversation are generally helping themselves string words together better. There's actual science on this. Rejoice, Italy! All is forgiven. So all of this is actually something that travel writers should think about. When they're wandering around, taking notes and snapping photos, they're, you know, travelling. They're there in that place, moving through it in an excited state. Blood pumping a little faster, senses are a bit sharper, they're much more curious, they're breathing in a certain type of air, they're smelling particular smells and so on. So of course their brains are all, holy crap, there's so much to write about here. But that's not how the writing part actually happens. Usually that is in a hotel room, or even worse, it's weeks later when they're back home, sat at a desk like my friend, wondering why they're finding it so hard to write, and wondering why their writing seems so flat, so lacking in something. Well of course it is. It's lacking the part of a travel writer's mind that changes everything, the place itself. Annie Murphy-Paul calls this situated cognition the place where you think is going to affect how you think. I mean, this is kind of what this whole newsletter is about. If you want to become more curious, go do a bunch of random things and see what see what happens to your curiosity. But it's also why I'm mentioning all this right now, because a while back I realised I was a better writer on trains. When I had pressing deadlines coinciding with a train journey, if I had a table to open my laptop onto, well, it just got written quicker. I had more fun. You know, I found it more interesting and less easy to be distracted by everything else and it just ended up better. And so I've thought for a few years now that a great way to write a book would actually be to grab one of those all-you-can-travel rail tickets and just spend a week riding the rails. There is actually a way to do this here. It's it's called the Spirit of Scotland ticket. £189 for eight days of unlimited travel on trains, trams, subways and some ferry journeys within a 15-day window. It's not available right now because of the pandemic but you know that that would be a fine thing and maybe a fine way to write with a collaborator or for two writers to work on separate projects you know periods of focus periods of knocking ideas around periods of leaping off the train together and exploring madly what a great antidote to the loneliness of solo writing projects that might be in amounts small enough to avoid you ending up sick at the sight of each other of course and and since I love walking, and I've noticed my best ideas happen when I'm doing it, I'm also trying to start to write on foot by using dictation software. Uh, check out otter.ai, thanks to uh, Al Humphreys for that suggestion. That's a great tool to use for this. But think about it, writing a book while walking, or editing a book somehow. All that energy and wander around you, what would that sound like in the writing, and in the thinking that creates the writing? I'd quite like to find out. I'm currently rewriting a short book about rain. So I'm going to try doing some of this while walking, if I can, just to see what happens. So anyway, what do you do? Through my calls with some of you I've met journalists, doctors and nurses, designers, builders, tour operators, a scientist, an archaeologist, a lab technician, forest ranger turning novelist, and lots of you doing things where straightforward labels don't really apply. And presumably you'd all quite like to know how to do these things better, to be able to think better while you're doing them, to have more fun, to feel like you have more energy left in the tank at the end of the day. You know, all those things. So there's one thing you can try here, or maybe two things. First of all, change what your body is doing and see if it makes a difference. If your thoughts are sluggish while you're sat down, stand up, walk around, try a treadmill. Or an exercise bike. You remember uh, Grandmaster Chess Player Timur Garyev on his uh, exercise bike, which I mentioned last season. Before you think through something tricky, dance in the middle of the room for 60 seconds in a really incompetent way, like you're some kind of human sized rubber chicken. Just let it all go everywhere. Or wave your hands like an angry Italian as you rehearse something back to yourself to see if it sounds good. Perform your thoughts as they come out. And the second part of this. Is inspired by my friend. If anything that you're doing using your brain becomes too hard to continue, don't just sit there annoyed at yourself because you can't seem to muster up the gumption to start working. What if it isn't you? Seriously, what if in this case it's the room? What if it's the table or your laptop or the whole building? What if you are simply in the wrong place for this particular job? What if the best place for this job is somewhere weird, halfway up a tree? or on that seat by the drinks machine, or in a coffee shop, or, yes, at the back of a bar at your local ski resort. Again, if you're faced with some version of the blank page of death, what if it's not you? What if the place you do your thing is massively changing your brain's ability to do that thing? Worth thinking about. I hope you agree.